Thank you, Andrew. And it's good to be back. <laughs> and I want to read this morning from uh, Luke chapter 19. It's a story that everyone knows. Unfortunately, most of us learned it in Sunday school. And all we know about it is one thing that's quite irrelevant. But um, it's chapter 19 of Luke. And Jesus entered and was passing through Jericho. And behold, there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And he was trying to see who Jesus was. He was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. That's all I remember from Sunday school. That's all I remember. Um, he ran on ahead, climbed up to the sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry, come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. But when they, the crowd, saw it, they began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. If I have defrauded anyone of anything, I'll give back four times as much. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. I don't know if we'll get to everything this morning, but um, Jesus had this thing with tax collectors. Um, they, they Today we might say they were underdogs. Incidentally, along with women, um, they, they were definitely underdogs. Um, but really, that's not true. In the eyes of the Jews, the tax collector wasn't an underdog. He was a dog. And when I say that, I mean it that he has lost his place totally in decent society. Um, he doesn't belong to the human race. He is not the kind of person God made. There's something happened, and he's been so twisted, he's now something else. He is a dog, and the, the decent people, and we're not, that's a big word for this, a very big word. You, you were just about any other Jew would not speak to them. They spat at them and put up with them because they were authorized by the Roman government. The way it worked, let me quickly clue you in, um, the Romans, who were the army of occupation, and they would say, say, of Bandera, it's up for auction. Um, there, there's so many people here, and we want X number of dollars every year from Bandera in taxes. That's what the Romans said. Now, do I have a good Jew here who will come over, betray his own people, work for the Roman government, and get that money out of your people. Because it takes a Jew to know a Jew. We don't know where they hide their money, but you do. So come and work for us. And the Jew would come over, and he would swear an oath to the Roman government, 
and say, I'll produce that enough, those taxes from Bandera every year. But once he'd done that, anything over that, that's his. So the Romans might say, you are taxed $100. Zacchaeus says, I think it would be better if we said 200 because I need to get paid. And so $200 comes out as Roman taxes, but the Romans only get 100 You take the rest. And it was well known, but they couldn't stop it. They were legalized thieves. They, they were, had the whole Roman government standing behind them. They, no one's going to mess with them except to hate them and to hate them and to disown them, to call them, as I said, dogs. But these were Jewish people. And Zacchaeus certainly was. He was raised in a Jewish home that kept the laws of Moses and all the prayers of the law. And according to custom, I think some of you, we've been over this before, the names of people in, in the Jewish uh, faith, they, they, the, the names were sort of little prayers. They were actually almost sentences sometimes. And it was all the desires of the parent at the birth of the child. And they focused all their prayers and everything they desired for this child and everything they believed that God was opening up for the child was put into their name. And so that's, it becomes interesting. Zacchaeus, would you believe, after I've just said about him, but the name Zacchaeus means light. That's the last thing I'd say about Zacchaeus. He, it, it means clean. It means pure. It means innocent, good grief. But this tells me about his parents. He has long departed their hopes and prayers, and he carries the name. Not that anybody knew it. They would call him many names, but one of them wouldn't be Zacchaeus. In fact, many people wouldn't even know his name. He was just the dirty turncoat. He was the betrayer, the traitor, and has become a Roman tax collector. But this little boy soon grew up to hear of the massive amount of money you could make as a tax collector. I mean, double the taxes and keep half yourself. Triple the taxes and take two-thirds yourself. Couldn't resist it. And so he became working as a tax collector, dropped out of Jewish society. In the synagogue, his name was inserted into the liturgy so that every Sabbath day in the synagogue, his name was read out and it was declared this man can never be saved. He is beyond the saving power of God. Um, he had no public faith in God couldn't, no submission to the law. He's excluded from the synagogue, excluded from the temple. In fact, and this might throw light on another parable, they would say of him, he's gone into a far country. He has gone where the name of God is not mentioned. He has gone where there's pagan uh, idols. He, his, what he got when he auctioned his soul off uh, was Jericho. Now, now Jericho is a very interesting place. don't know if you've been there, but it's the lowest point on the planet. You go down and down and down, 
and it's right there by the Dead Sea. And But it's the gateway across Jordan, and across Jordan were the pathways that led this way to Europe and that way to the Far East, and the Silk Road, and the road... Oh, you realize everybody that had anything to sell the other side of Jordan, in Europe, in India, in... It all went through Zacchaeus's tax booth. He had very big pockets. And the people on their way, they're ready to pay whatever the tax collector said. Um, what would you feel like if when you, say, go to Houston, and every time you come to a toll road, you are charged whatever the toll road decides to charge you? It, you can understand the rage that these people had toward the tax collector. He'd exchanged his soul for a pocket full of money, and he'd stolen it from his own people, his own kin. So I say again, in the eyes of all Jews, he's less than a human. Um, he's not the person God made. Something terrible has happened at the core of his being. He's another species. He's unable to be saved. He's doomed. The Pharisees would say he was damned in hell. And on top of that, he's unusually short. I don't know. I won't give a height. It varies from culture to culture. But he was short, and he was driven by that statue. <laughs> He was driven to tower above everyone in his authority. I think he got something out of it, that he, he, he's the smallest person in town, but he's the biggest one when it came to authority and crushing on the backs of the people. And so he quickly rises, very quickly. And soon he's got tax collectors working for him, which means he's getting income. Boy, this is better than Amway. You know, it's he's, he's getting this line and that line and the other line. So the Bible makes note he was very rich. And everybody knows what Luke meant by that when he wrote it. And of course, all over Israel were these people, tax collectors. And, and the feeling of Israel from Dan to Beersheba was... The same, the dogs, pariah dogs, dogs that skulk around the trash heaps. And Jesus did the unthinkable. I've often said if Jesus had a manager, he, he, he blew it. He, Jesus is never going to fulfill his ministry. He sat down and he ate with tax collectors. He had women in his entourage. Yikes. Does this, does he have any connection with what's going on here? People said, if you touch a tax collector, you become as filthy as they are. They are unrighteous. And if you touch them, you become unrighteous. It was like they had some awful spiritual COVID. And, and, and if you get around them, you're going to catch it. That's, that was the tax collector. Jesus came, and he turned the world upside down. He had special feastings for tax collectors. 
And when they came to the feast, he hugged them, kissed them on both cheeks and said, I've been waiting for you. He's turning the world the right way up. But now it's the end of his ministry, nearly. He's coming to Jerusalem. He already has lived through it. And the people now just don't understand him, but accept him as the one who eats with publicans or that's what they uh, the tax collectors and the sinners. He comes to Jericho. And the scripture says he entered Jericho and was passing through. That is, no stops here. He's just passing through. Because the road, it comes down the River Jordan. When it gets to Jericho, it goes up to Jerusalem. Again, if you've been there, you know what I mean. From Jericho to Jerusalem is 17 miles straight up from the lowest place on earth to Jerusalem, which is in a mountain range. It's a very dangerous road. That's where the Good Samaritan parable took place. Um, you can expect a mugging if you're there by yourself. What on earth is Jesus doing here? He's not going to stop. He's going through Jericho. He's chosen the most arduous of all roads. He could have chosen another road. But he gave the game away when he called to Zacchaeus. Do you remember? I tried to emphasize it. He looked up through the leaves and he said, I must. It's a, a word that Luke enjoys to tell us about. And uh, that must is a necessity. He uses it when speaking of the crucifixion. It's a divine necessity. He must suffer. Jesus said, there's somebody in Jericho that I must meet. Yes. My father told me. He'd already put it in my appointment book. I've got to meet him. Same as when he went to Samaria, he must meet that woman. Yeah, it's a wonderful thing to be at the working end of God's must. Yeah. Zacchaeus had heard of Jesus, who hadn't by this time, and he wanted to see him, especially wanted to see him. He's the only person that he knew, and only knew by rumor and by hearsay, is the only person who actually said nice things about tax collectors. Certainly the only one that ever sat down and ate with them. And there was even told that he had a disciple, Matthew, who had been the tax collector in a very similar place up in Galilee where all the roads met and lots of taxes exchanged. And in the middle of the day, Matthew just laid it all down and followed Jesus, who is this person that has such magnetic influence that you'll lay down everything, a fortune of money, and, and follow Jesus. I'd like to meet this Jesus. I'd like to meet a man who will hug the tax collector, and say, it's so good to see you. Someone to treat me like a human being. There, there was no advertising, of course, but the news swiftly got ahead. People running ahead of Jesus. It was coming, and by the time he gets to Jericho, 
the streets are packed. And then as he's coming into Jericho, he heals the blind man, Bartimaeus, has set the city on fire. But by the time he's now, the crowd is just about everybody in Jericho. And here's Zacchaeus, the little short man on tippy-toe, trying to see. Stands out like a sore thumb in his rich, expensive, latest fashion from Rome clothes, his leather sandals. And the people enjoy it. For once, they can get back at him. Shoulder to shoulder, immovable. No one's going to let him through. (laughs) And so he runs ahead, somehow gets through the crowd, runs ahead and runs ahead, way ahead to the tree, sycamore tree. I'd love to have seen that little guy with all his silks, robes, trying to climb up that tree, grab on a branch, hoist his leg over the next branch, tearing his robes, getting dirty, until he's sitting way up there on the V of a tree. I guess he felt good in a way, because he can survey his empire and know that he's got every one of those people in his hand and in their pocket. But I also wonder, he's invisible up there, invisible under the leaves and the sticks and the branches it's quiet silent because everybody's back there down the road waiting for jesus and he's alone there's something to that you know there are people who are terrified of being alone terrified of silence because words and thoughts that they'd never wanted to think are now beginning to rise this man knew who he was He'd had an upbringing in the law. He had godly parents as far as they could be under Judaism. And those people did did it. I'm speculating. Something happened to that man in that tree. How long? It wouldn't be that many minutes, but it doesn't take long for a whole life to be turned upside down. As he looked, and, and I think he caught a glimpse uh, of why the people hated him, caught a glimpse of what he was, nothing but a legalized thief, and mixed that in with the fact he's up on that tree because he wants to see Jesus, and he's heard things of this person that he's never heard from anybody else, and put it together, he, he's in a strange situation. So much so, it seems he didn't notice the crowd was moving and Jesus was coming down the road. Now this, this, now this, is, is, this is pure Jesus. It says, when Jesus came to the tree, he stopped. Nobody in the crowd knew why. And he looked up, a deliberate, intentional, looked up, and he saw Zacchaeus astride a branch way up in the tree. Who told him to stop? This was part of that must 
And then he said, Zacchaeus. How did he know his name? It would be pretty true to say maybe nobody in Jericho really knew his name. How did he know his name? And then he said, hurry. I must come and be at your house tonight. Which was his own invitation to himself to be at the major meal, the evening meal, which would last most of the evening. And he was saying, I'm staying overnight. I'm coming and I'm, we're going to have a long talk. The must. Father told me about you. Father told me to watch and he would tell me when I found you. Well, I found you. Now, get down that tree because we have got to get to your house. Don't let that pass you by. You are not part of a mob. You're not your social security number. Think about it. God knows your name. I mean, on the one sense, that's pretty obvious. Or is it? I know the God many people worship wouldn't know your name. I think it did the last time I was here, did I, that, that chap in Acts who thought if the use of the name of Jesus, he could command demons. Do you remember that story? And the demons turned on him. And they said, Jesus, I know. Paul, I know, but who the heck are you? Satan doesn't know your name. Doesn't like you anyway. But Father, Son, and Holy Spirit knows my name and loves me and calls me by my name so that he said, my sheep hear my voice. Zacchaeus obeyed nobody except the Roman government. But when he heard that voice, he is scrambling down the tree before he knows it. Zacchaeus. It's the name his mother called him when he's playing in the street and dinner's ready, Zacchaeus. And so personal, almost it's family. And and it's not that harsh Zacchaeus. It's a inviting, accepting, welcoming. It's, it's not the superior. There's no angry voice here. This this is urgent. You must come down. Hurry. You must. But. It's the voice of love that is calling. I think he dropped most of the way down the tree <laughs> and comes out of the branches. And he goes immediately to Jesus and he says he received him. That's the word everybody had accused Jesus of. He receives sinners. Well, this sinner receives him. He, he'd heard, he'd heard 
I'm coming to your house. Okay, I'll receive you, which means he put his arms around Jesus. It probably didn't reach up to his chest even, but it's okay. He put his arms around Jesus and welcomed him to his house. And suddenly, it dawns on the crowd what's happening. I don't think they they knew to begin with. It doesn't read like that. Um, They heard him saying to somebody that he was coming to their house, and he was staring up into a tree when he said it. But a crowd wouldn't know what else is happening. But it's when that little rat comes down the tree. Now we know who he was talking to. And the rage rises. The word in the Greek intimates a buzz. Um, The mirror translation says it was like a a nest of hornets being disturbed. And I think that reflects the word there. It's everybody suddenly. You you realize up until now they've been hooraying Jesus. He's the hero. He's just healed the blind man. He came to our city. But now it's turned They've turned into a bunch of hornets, and, and, and they're raging. What is this? He comes here. He's walking through. He's not stopping. And he goes and invites himself to the house of... They recognize Zacchaeus. I don't think they knew his name, but they recognized him. And they see hugs are exchanged. Now, that was another thing um, that they really believed. As I said, um, it was as if if you touched a tax collector, you would get a dose of spiritual COVID. Um, They really believed that, that the the unrighteousness of the one would be transferred to you. Well, again, Jesus turned the world upside down, and he hugged the unhuggable didn't really touch them. He hugged or received a hug and returned it. And he wasn't made unrighteous. Zacchaeus caught Jesus. Jesus didn't catch the unrighteousness. But Zacchaeus was drawn into this love of God. Nothing happened to Jesus. His disciples didn't have to be disinfected. They were instead. The the crowd are seeing something they've never seen before. Now, Zacchaeus, you've got to follow this. Zacchaeus is really caught in an awkward situation. He's been told that Jesus is coming to his house, which he welcomes with all his heart. And as he is in the act of welcoming Jesus to his house, he realizes the crowd has suddenly caught on. And that's when they heard the buzz of angry people. He's going to eat with a man that is a sinner. And it rises to a crescendo. Everybody is shouting it. And remember, most of Jericho is there on the road. 
And Zacchaeus has just welcomed this incredible person to his house. And the people are now accusing Jesus of not only receiving a hug, that's now disappeared into nothing. The man's going to eat at that house. And Zacchaeus, who has been excited to welcome Jesus to his house, is now embarrassed, as if they let the dog out. And, you know, maybe Jesus didn't know how bad I am, doesn't know what they thought of me. But now it's out, and I can't stop it. Jesus now knows this is my name by public opinion, a sinner. And what is Jesus now going to say, well, I didn't, you know, I suddenly remembered I've got another appointment, and <laughs> I don't know, what's he going to do? And Zacchaeus appears. He appears to think if he could only somehow wipe out his reputation. And he goes to Jesus. He doesn't address the crowd. He goes to Jesus. He said, half of my wealth I will give to the poor. I, I hope you're knowing what you're saying, Zacchaeus. That's a lot of money you're about to give away. But he's not finished. He said, if anybody wants to come to me and say that I've stolen from them and overcharged in taxes, then I will repay you fourfold. He's sort of half-talking law language, but the law didn't say fourfold, it said two. So he's doubling up on the law. But if you're a mathematician, I'm not. But if you are, work it out. He's just given away everything. Yeah. Half is gone to the poor. Everybody in town says he stole from me. So he's going to be giving away the other half. Have you thought about this, Zacchaeus, or are you just so angry and so upset and so ashamed and you want to tell Jesus, I, I, I will do something so incredibly good that it will surely wipe out something that is so incredibly bad. That's what it seems to be. And all of this time he's shouting in Jesus' ear because the crowd is making such a noise. So he's appealing directly to Jesus standing on tiptoe, looking up to Jesus, saying, I'll, I'll do this. I'm not, I'm not the man they're saying. I, I, I'm... Is that enough? If I gave away half my fortune, if I, if I returned those that have stole, I've stolen from, is that enough? Is there something else I have to do? Jesus, hear me. Is there something I can do to make me worthy of hosting you tonight? Well, I think you know and I know that if he promised a million shekels to every poor man in Jericho, that still wouldn't be enough because we're dealing in apples and oranges. 
I was in a part of Africa where they they didn't have money per se. They wanted salt. Don't ask me why. But that if, if you had five bags of salt, you were a wealthy man. Well, you go to Macy's and try one of those bags of salt. You follow me? If you're going to talk about person to person, it might be very impressive that he says he'll do all of these things. But if we're dealing with the real issues of life, then it's, it's enough. No, there's no, there's nothing enough. I cannot do enough good that it will somehow cover the bad. Not enough. But I love the way Jesus does it. He doesn't shame him. He could have stood there and said, the people are right. But that's not Jesus. That's religion. A Pharisee would have done that. No, Jesus doesn't say it. Doesn't address the massive offering. Nor, incidentally, does he really address the people who are screaming. He simply said, today, salvation is come to this house. Now, that was a play on words. Because did you know Jesus' name? You know, in Hebrew, Yeshua. You know what that means? Yahweh is my salvation. Jesus was just said, I'm coming to your house. Now he says, salvation is coming. He is salvation. And he is coming to the house, to the man who was named light and purity and, and innocence. But the only way to get there, the answer of his parents' prayer, is in this man who is God incarnate. He is salvation. He, in this moment, now we've come to the must, I must go through Jericho to meet this man and to be salvation in his house. Salvation. The word is kicked around these days. Um, you know, are you saved? Sounds boring to me, but, you know, are you saved? Um, you're met by bright-eyed little evangelicals at airports, you know, if if your plane crashed, are you saved? Well, I, I'm very serious. The average American doesn't have a clue what it means. And if you ask an average evangelical, it's all about death. Where are you going after you die? Very morbid. Salvation has nothing to do with that. Nothing to do with that. Salvation is Jesus. It's not a thing that he did. It's not a passport to heaven. It's Jesus. And he said, and this, don't miss it. He looked at the crowd, and they're, they're accusing him of being with this man. 
if you can call him that. And Jesus said, he, Zacchaeus, he too, T-O-O, he too is a son of Abraham. He too. Meaning every one of you there would call yourselves sons of Abraham. And I am a son of Abraham. Well, he too. He's not a dog. He's not some half human, half monkey. He's he's not something gone so wrong he can never be. He too is a son of Abraham. What what does that mean? Means a lot. Doesn't well. It could, in terms of one way of looking at it, he was a descendant of Abraham, so I guess son. But there's many more meanings in the Hebrew to son of than simply I've got my genealogical papers. Abraham is the foundation of the rest of the Bible. And in it, he is promised by God that he will be blessed. Blessed means an empowering. It means almost a divine hug. That you are surrounded, you are embraced in love and enablement in all that you touch and all you do. And Abraham, you will be blessed. And secondly, your descendants will be blessed. There'll be an unusual people more than the stars in the sky and the sand on the sea. But then, I mean, if you just heard that, you would think that Abraham was chosen. God said, I need a pet, and I'm going to treat these people like nobody else, and the whole world will know they're my chosen people. No, no. They were chosen, but not that way. He said, the third son of Abraham, he said, There'll be one, one descendant. So descendants, sky filled with stars, beach filled with sand, you won't be able to count them. But one, and in you, Abraham, and that descendant, all families of the earth will be blessed. So through you, Abraham, I give you the responsibility and your descendants the responsibility of carrying the news of my blessing and my love and my pro-you, pro-human, carry it to the whole world for every family in the earth will be blessed with that same blessing that I'm giving you. And Jesus was the descendant. And that's not just a preacher's thought. You go to Matthew chapter 1, and the old genealogy, it proves Jesus is the descendant. Jesus said in John, Abraham saw my day and was glad. Jesus and Abraham, Abraham's the beginning and Jesus is the goal. And he's saying to the people, he too, he is by birth, if you want to go there. 
but he is because the promise that I gave to Abraham was that not only you, but all families, even this wretched little toad of a man, all families of the earth shall be blessed. There is not one that I do not come to with love. Grace gives us a level playing field. Sometimes we have it the other way around. We think grace is defined by singing. You know, amazing grace who saved a wretch like me. And there are some people that just roll that around their tongue. A wretch like me. Grace is for wretches. No, grace is for nice, decent people. Grace is for wretches. Grace is for Zacchaeus. Grace is for... Annas the high priest. It's a level playing field. Grace is for a poor man. Grace is for a man who can give a million dollars to every poor person. Doesn't make any difference. You can't buy your way in. It's a gift. It's an insult to the giver to question the gift. It's a gift. And when you give a gift, you've already paid for it. So God himself has taken the cost. Grace. And it isn't that you've done something that has turned you into something else. The, so I go to the New Testament and say, what's wrong with the human race? It, it speaks more in terms of blindness. It speaks more in terms of a mentality that is being darkened. Let, let me read very, I'm not staying here, but read it quickly. Paul is writing to the Ephesians, he said, the Gentiles, they walk in the futility of their mind. He said, that's where their futile living starts. They are darkened in their understanding. Mm -hmm. They're excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. And then when he speaks of what Jesus does in our lives, he says, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. What's what's wrong with the human race? They're blind. With a profound blindness. In physical blindness, you do know there's another reality that you can't see. And your other senses see it. And I've said many times, a blind person can see more than I can sometimes. But this is not that. This is... I say, I know no other word for it, a profound blindness where I do not know there's another reality where I have been blinded to be left to invent within my darkness my reality. And it was into that darkness that comes the promise, all families of the earth. Jesus, the descendant of Abraham, God come among us, goes into our darkness. He comes into that mess and says, salvation has come. I've come into your house. He knows our identity. He knows who I truly am. I don't until he shows me, until the lights are turned on. I made myself up. I fashioned my own mask. 
I hope you'd notice it. Because that's who I pretend to be. That's darkness. And when Jesus comes, I know who I am. Zacchaeus had got used to being thought of as a dog. So he acted all the more like one. Jesus comes and says, you're not a dog. You're son of Abraham. It's the same thing with the other parables of Jesus in Luke 15. You know, Remember, he's talking to tax collectors there. They said, everything I've just told you, they said. Jesus said, no. He said, let me tell you, the tax collector is like a, a little lamb that was lost. And I so value that lamb because I own it. It is my lamb. I'm going to find it. Can you imagine how that went over? When Jesus looked at the tax collector and said, what I see is a white little lamb. Innocent. I see you. I see what God intended you to be. In fact, you're like a coin, a precious coin. And I'll turn the whole jolly house out to find you. You're so precious to me. A boy that came home with his sinner's prayer on his lips, I'm no good, I'm unworthy to be called your son. And the father portraying Jesus at that moment flings his arms around him, gives him a bear hug and says, you are my son. Son of Abraham brings a blessing into the world. How can you get that blessing? Take it. (laughs) Trust the speaker. Take his gift. He knows who we are. He says he come to seek us and to save us. Seek, seek, seek. Which means... You're not just saved as a mob. You know, he seeks you. Seek means overcoming barriers. It means going down futile roads. It means dead ends. It means turning back on yourself. It means hours of arduous work. Jesus said, I'm seeking you because... Your twistedness, your darkness is unique to you. Nobody else is like you in their darkness. So I'm coming into your darkness and I'm getting right where you are. Even as he went right into the wilderness of the sheep and he sat down beside the sheep and saved it. The woman had to get into the filth and the muck under the straw of the house and find it. The father had to run out and hug that boy that stunk like a pig. Mm-hmm. He comes where we are. He seeks us. I was in Alaska way up, and the person with me says, you've got to see this. There was, I'll call it a mountain, maybe hill, But I mean, it's a mighty big hill. And there was a husband, a man and a woman, with a spade, shovel. And they were digging 
the mountain away. They were moving the mountain. And he says they've been doing this for a year and it'll take another year. They were literally moving a little mountain with their shovels because they had good reason to believe there was treasure underneath the mountain. I've never forgotten that. You are, you are God's treasures in the darkness. And he'll move the mountain to find you. That's the way it is. And when he does, he says, I found you. Rejoice with me. I found you. And he puts you on his shoulders. He carries you. Embrace the most intimate relationship. And he's shouting out to everybody he knows, Rejoice with me. I found my sheep. I found them. And I know the sheep in the next meeting will stand up and say, I found the Lord. But it's neither here nor there. It's a good job he found you first. He found us in his sufferings. He found us in the cross. And then he said, today, salvation. So what is salvation? Salvation is deliverance. You were bound, you were captive to many things and people. And you were delivered. You were set free. Yes. Restored to what God originally intended you to be. You've been rescued out of death itself. The word also means physical, mental, emotional health. I want you to know that because most of America is suffering anxiety, depression. The word salvation means to be healed, not only on the inside, but every part of your being. And it is used like that in the New Testament. Wholeness. Protection, all those words. He's he's rescued you. He's delivered you out of the hands of the darkness and set you free. He says, and the Lord is my light and my salvation. The Lord is my. I said it a few minutes ago. It's not a thing he does. It's not a piece of paper handed where you sign at the bottom. It's a person who says, I am your salvation. The Lord is my salvation. Is my. Right at this moment, the is is present tense. It's not when you die. Is, is. In this throbbing now, is my if he is salvation, he now says, he is my. My is possession. He gave himself to us and we... we be, you see, the whole message of the gospel is summed up in the word relationship. Yeah. Much of the church today has substituted that and said it's destination. Yeah. 
Where are you going? But the word is all about relationship. That that he is my, I am his, and I'm drawn into what Jesus said it in John fourteen twenty, didn't he? He says, In that day you'll know that I'm in the Father, that I am in in you. He just said I'm in the Father. No, he says, I'm in you, and you are in me. Yes. <clears throat> it describes a relationship that you can't untangle. And he started it. The, the, there's no, um, the human d- does not initiate. In fact, we're so blind, we don't really want him. We don't see the need. So he comes into our darkness and he saves us without your permission. Yeah, it's. I'm I'm groping to say this as I want to say it. He didn't do something to save you. He is the someone who saves you. He is our salvation. Do do you get that? There's, I, I've heard it <clears throat> as if something happened at the cross in which a thing called salvation was accomplished. It was done. So now it's done. Now you, you've got to go and find <clears throat> enough faith and sorrow to buy it. Whereas what I'm trying to say is that Jesus didn't do something and then leave us to work it out. He is the whole enchilada. He saved us. He is salvation. And it's only when our eyes are open to see him that we can even define what sin is. We didn't know about that before. So if you talk about any form of turning from sin, it begins with seeing what he's done and who he is. And along with that comes this, I can trust him. I can trust him. He's the author of it all. And I say it's the most intimate to know I am loved, and he sought me, found me, and he is salvation. Mm-hmm. That, that, that's it. It's clear. See, take, take marriage. It's the closest thing in a Western society as a covenant. Um, and people might say, you know, I'm, I'm getting married. So they're talking about a state, marriage, and I'm getting married. But you know, the essence of that is you may now kiss the bride. When I marry someone, I mean, is the 
the guy who does it. Uh, where, where, yeah, when I do it, I don't say at the end, okay, guys, you're married, sign here. My final words are, you may now kiss the bride. Because all this that we have gone through is to bring you to intimacy, to love, in a fashion that you didn't know before. You've now come into this. People say, you know, I got saved. You're talking about a state. But the essence of salvation is he is my salvation. It's not just simply I did the right things. I've given some of you this illustration before, but it, 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 it comes to us from very long ago, almost early church. When you have broken pipes under your sink and you call the plumber, the plumber does a lot for you. He gets under the sink and he takes out the broken pipes and he puts in new ones that hopefully will last longer than these last ones did. And um, you pay him and he goes away and you hope never to see him again. If I were to take that as a possible illustration of salvation, that's what I mean by Jesus doing something for us. No. What I've been trying to say is when this plumber comes, he doesn't take out the broken pipes. He becomes the broken pipe. And in becoming the broken pipe, he is the mending of the pipe. And as long as he is one with the pipe, it will never break again. The, the one that comes to us from very long ago is that the doctor comes to his terminal patient and gives him all manner of potions. He's doing something for him. But when this doctor comes, in the wonder of who he is, in the incarnation, he became the terminal patient and is the health of that patient He's the salvation of that patient. And when he rises again, the patient rises because they're utterly one. And wherever he goes, the patient goes. Wherever the patient goes, he goes. He is their life and health. That's the gospel. He is, Jesus is, salvation. It's not where I'm going it is that I am now united with Jesus at a level that is almost too much to speak about. Today, salvation has come to this house. And I'm not about to say every head bowed and every eye closed. <laughs> I just want you to realize, I'll say this, what you got yourself into because so many of us came into this without really knowing what was happening to us. We were preached a half gospel. So you don't have to get saved all over again. Just realize, what have I got myself into? 
as Jesus himself stands before you and says, I am he that liveth. I am livingness. I was dead. Behold, I am alive forevermore. Now that's the gospel. He's alive and he comes to us. And so, Zacchaeus didn't plead for mercy. He tried to make himself look good. But salvation came to his house that night. That's why it's in the Gospel of Luke. Because Luke said, I have gone to each one of these personally, and I've checked on their story. It's in the opening paragraph. Luke found Zacchaeus. Matthew didn't write about him. John doesn't write about him. Mark doesn't write about him. Luke found him. Maybe because Luke was a Gentile and he could relate to the Jews looking down on him. Um, Whatever. But this is for real. And I thought it would be good today to understand what it means for me to live is Christ. Amen. Amen. And amen. Psalms 27. The Lord is my life and my salvation. Whom shall I fear or be afraid? That's right. He is the strength of my life. Amen. Amen. (coughs) That was in my notes. I didn't get to it. Yeah. Yeah. Father, we give you thanks. We give you thanks for the gift of your Son, Lord Jesus Christ. We give you thanks for the Holy Spirit who opens the eyes of our understanding and brings us to rejoice in so great a salvation. Send us on our way this day leaping and dancing and giving praise to you. Lord Jesus Christ, amen.